didn't make it. So, uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So this is a repeat of verses 12 and 13 in this same chapter, uh, basically saying the same thing twice for added emphasis, uh, just to make sure that we don't miss the point. Uh, he lays down the doctrine, and then he makes an appeal to us on the basis of that doctrine. Uh, so the doctrine that we've been shown in verse 18 is that we have been set free from sin and have been enslaved to righteousness. Dead to sin, alive to Christ, as he had said earlier. So he keeps saying the same thing over and over. And based on this doctrine, he gives us an exhortation to do something. Uh, but he does so in a rather unusual way. He starts this out, uh, uh, starts this exhortation out with what almost appears to be an apology or possibly a disclaimer, as it were. He gives us this preliminary statement before moving forward with his exhortation. He says, I am speaking in human terms. Um, he says, this is an, an, an admission that he has been using an illustration or an analogy, and that being regarding slavery that he began to use all the way back in verse 16, and he is continuing to use this and will, and will continue to use it all the way through the end of the chapter. I am speaking in human terms, meaning that he is using a familiar illustration taken from ordinary life. Now, why would he pause here and call attention to this instead of just continuing on with his illustration? It's because he wants us to know why he did it. Why is he using the illustration of slavery here to teach this very important doctrine? Well, he tells us as we continue, the first reason is so that he can make the subject matter clear. Everyone he is speaking, speaking to is intimately familiar with slavery. And since the business of teaching and preaching is always to make the subject matter clear, then it would seem that this use of this illustration of slavery is to make the subject matter clear. Now, we have two dangers in preaching and teaching, very clear and present dangers, one being the methodology of some to lean towards childishness. Uh, these are those that have messages that are filled with stories and illustrations and jokes and analogies to the point that it might be quite entertaining, but it is of very little benefit uh, beyond that. And the other danger is to be found in those who are too smart for their own good. Now, fortunately, you don't have that problem with me here. I, <laughs> if you've ever been involved in public education, you are well aware of the fact that America has been dumbed down over the last century. Okay? I'm not going to go into that as part of the lesson, but suffice to say that if you read any of the theologians from the past one or two or three hundred years, the vocabulary and the intelligence level is far and away above anything that I can manage, okay? Just go and read some of the Puritans' writings if you want to see just how far we have fallen, okay? 
Now, the danger is that there are though there are some who do read these men, uh, do understand these men, and seek to imitate these men in both piety and vocabulary. Uh, what's the danger in that? Well, the, the, these men, and there are quite a few, that are so academic and so verbose that the majority of those that listen to them have no idea what they are talking about. You ever listen to somebody like that? Okay. The business of the preacher or teacher and the lesson is to make the meaning plain. So Paul says here, I am using this analogy so that you might better understand what I am talking about, and that is the only reason that I am using this illustration or this analogy. Not for the purpose of being entertaining, as so many do today, but there's another standpoint that we need to look at as well. Paul is using this illustration to make the doctrine clear, uh, of course, but he is also very anxious to avoid and prevent any serious misunderstanding of what he is saying. We know that this happened very often in Paul's teaching because we are told in Scripture that it happened very often in Paul's teaching. Okay, Second Peter three fifteen and sixteen. Uh, Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some, some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Okay? So Paul knew, we know that, some people found Paul hard to understand because the Scripture tells us that some people found Paul hard to understand. See how easy that was? Paul is well aware that there was a danger that what he is saying might be misunderstood. And so he uses this analogy of slavery to safeguard his teaching uh, from the twisting in as, in as much as he could anyway. So what is, what is the teaching that he is safeguarding? Well, we find that all the way back in verse 14. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, now, what kind of twisting might the ignorant and unstable do to such a statement as that? Well, now, since we are not under law, we surely don't need to be bothered about our conduct or our behavior any longer now, do we? We are free, absolutely free. But Paul says, no, no, you're not. You are now slaves to righteousness. You are enslaved to righteousness. The man who is no longer under the law is now under law to Christ. He is not free from righteousness. He is free to righteousness. Set free so that he can finally practice righteousness that he never could have done before. Paul is very concerned that no one should even imagine that not, many, that not being under the law means that a Christian is completely free. No, he says, Christians have moved from one master to a new master. We are now slaves to righteousness, slaves to grace, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. That is why he uses this analogy of slavery, to make it quite plain and clear that we were slaves of sin, 
and the devil, but one stronger has come and purchased us from our former master and made us his own slaves. Paul says, I am using this slavery analogy so that no one will hopefully twist this to their own destruction, uh, which we unfortunately all know some who do that anyway. So the slavery analogy is a good one, and it clarifies many things for us, but in, in it there is also a warning. He says this is in human terms, and it exists because of our natural limitations, it serves a purpose, but it must never be taken too far, as it were. Yes, there is a kind of slavery in the Christian life, but it is not like that old slavery. One is not completely like the other. We were enslaved to sin. We are now enslaved to righteousness. The two are not identical. They're similar, but there is a difference. Under sin, the slavery we were under came with absolute domination of the strong man, as Jesus refers to him in Luke chapter 11 and verse 21. Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's a picture of us. There we are, under complete tyranny. No freedom whatsoever. Totalitarian tyranny of the worst type. Say that three times fast. Totalitarian tyranny. Okay. Every breath we, de- we drew was in service to that strong man. That strong man being who? The devil. Okay. Um, but says Paul, our slavery to righteousness is different. It's a good analogy but it breaks down if you push it too far. What is our actual relationship to righteousness and our enslavement to it? It combines slavery and freedom into one thing. This new slavery is a kind of compulsion, yes, but not like the previous one. We are slaves, but we are not slaves like we were before. What's the difference? difference is that the Christian is now a slave to love. The element of love comes in and that changes the entire situation. Because a man who is in love is, of course, a slave. He lives for the other. He lives for the object of his love and the one whom he loves really controls him totally. Yes, both are slavery, Now, as Christians, we are willing to be in slavery because of our love for our new master. 2 Corinthians 5 and 14 gives us a picture of that. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. What controls us? For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one who has died for all... Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's a wordy definition of sanctification. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. 
Welcome to the paradox. A paradox of the entire Christian faith and position. The Christian is not a free man. He is a man who is under the tyranny of love. The love of Christ controls us. What we do, what we say, where we go, the love of Christ controls us. If it doesn't, then you might not be one. It's as simple as that. We live not for ourselves, but for who? For Christ, okay? An, un an unsaved man is under a tyrannical burden of self-service and self-worship and self-love and has no freedom at all to serve or love anything or anyone but himself. We have been freed from that. and We have been enslaved to the love of Christ. That is the paradox that Paul is attempting to explain. Yes, there is a compulsion in both cases. Yes, there is the certainty of disobedience in both cases. But after that, everything else is different. The Christian is under the power of righteousness. This is not a position of detachment, not one where we are puppets on a string as we were before. We are not free and detached. We cannot do whatever we so please because righteousness is a controlling power. We are under grace, and because of that, there is a certainty in the results of our enslavement. Just like our old enslavement led to death, he says our new enslavement leads to righteousness and to sanctification. So This illustration is a help, but only up to a certain point. Which brings us to another reason for using this illustration. He says it's because of your natural limitations. He's, talking, he's not talking about our intellect. This is not about some being smarter than others when it comes to Scripture. What are natural limitations? Well, it is what we have in the flesh that is dominated and perverted and misused by sin. It's not just that we are not smart enough to understand what he is saying without these illustrations. It is as a result of the fall that man has lost the ability to grasp spiritual things. Lost the, the ability to understand biblical doctrine. So let's put it like this. Becoming a Christian is not primarily a matter of the intellect at all. Now, if you're dumb like me, you can thank God for that, okay? Because it, <laughs> it's not a matter of the intellect. But men can have great minds, great knowledge, great natural understanding, and at the same time see no redeeming value in Christianity whatsoever. Paul says it is foolishness to those that are perishing, a stumbling block and foolishness. So what are our, what are our natural limitations? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this is Paul's reminder that spiritual things, spiritual knowledge, doesn't just fall out of thin air into our laps. We all have this natural limitation that keeps us from seeing these things. It is spiritually discerned. We are taught by the Spirit what things mean. 
It's not just going to fall into our laps, however, because of our spiritual limitations, or our natural limitations. These fundamental principles that Paul is expounding on here by the use of this slavery analogy, he is basically saying that it should not be necessary for him to have to do this. This is something that we should already know. And yet there are Christians that have been in the church for umpteen years. You remember my umpteen from last week? Been in the church for umpteen years who still do not know the basics of the Christian faith. It requires study. It requires searching the scriptures. Far too many are just satisfied with a 30-minute sermon on Sunday morning, and that is all they get for the entirety of their life. That is their natural limitations. Uh, We have to realize that these fundamental principles of growth are our responsibility. Yes, they are spiritually discerned, but we are required to put in the effort to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We have to fight against apathy and laziness. We must read, we must study, and we must meditate. We have to exercise exercise our minds and wrestle with these things from Paul that Peter says are hard to understand. This is how we learn what these things mean, is by wrestling with them. And we can rest assured we have been promised that if we have a willing heart and a true desire to know the truth, that the Spirit will always come to our aid, and we will grow not only in grace, but in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. We have to carefully watch every word that Paul writes because there are often some very deep truths to be found in what would appear to most to be nothing more than a passing remark. You know, you could get five pages of notes out of one sentence. This is, this is five pages from me. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a chapter and a half. And so Paul follows up this statement with our practical exhortation that naturally follows the doctrine that he has laid down for us in verse 18 previously. And so he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So he's back to talking about our members again. And if you remember from previous lessons, what is being referred to here are the actual parts and portions of our physical body. It also includes our mind and our imagination and our heart and our feelings and our emotions. Members meaning all the ways in which we express ourselves, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional. And so Paul's command is that we are to present our whole being as slaves to righteousness which leads to our sanctification. And here in this verse, we see the awesomeness of the change that's being made. He says, just as you once did that in that way, we now do this in this way. That's the change. Again, we still have the same members that we had before. 
Those members are more or less neutral. They only do our bidding. So what Paul is saying is, just as you once presented your members to the realm of sin, so now present those same members as servants of righteousness leading to sanctification. This is our reminder that we do not receive new members or new faculties when we become Christians because we don't need them. Okay, We're still the same man that we were before with regards to our abilities and our powers and our talents. We do not receive natural powers at conversion that we did not have before. We are still the same in ability. The writer of this statement, being the Apostle Paul, is our perfect example of what we are talking about. Paul the Apostle was once what? Saul of Tarsus, okay? And as such, he was a persecutor. He was violent. He was blasphemous. And he was a man who did things very, very thoroughly with great energy, great dedication and feeling. Saul never did things halfway. Whatever he did, he did with all his might. He persecuted the church with all that was in him. Now, what happened when he was converted? He still has those same qualities, those same inner drives, same fire, as it were. <clears throat> he did not suddenly become a quiet little man with no, who no longer desired confrontation. He preached with the same power and conviction that once marked his acts of persecution. He still had the same members that he had before. He just presented them to a new master and for a new purpose. Some think that as Christians that we should all be identical. Since we are new creations in Christ, we must be exactly the same in every respect. Truth is, we were never meant to be the same. That is what Paul is urging these Roman Christians to think about. In effect, he says, look, you have your powers, you have your gifts, you have your faculties. All these things that you used to use for the wrong master in the past, now take those, use them for the one who gave them to you in the first place. Just be who you are, but be who you are in service to righteousness. Man's essential personality is not changed by his conversion. Our personality is what it is, and it is our personality, or lack thereof in my case, that makes us who we are. It is what makes each of us unique. Just as you once used your members for that, that over there, even so, now, use those exact same members for a new and better purpose. We are not given new members, just new marching orders. In other words, if a man prior to his conversion was rather backward intellectually, we have no right to expect him to suddenly become a genius just because he's become a Christian. He's not a defective Christian. He is not to be penalized. We have the same abilities and powers after conversion that we had before conversion. They do not change. One difference Christianity makes is that it should make us use what God has given us in a better and more diligent and purposeful manner than we did before. God has given each of us our personalities and powers and propensities, and we used to, we used to present, present those 
to impure thoughts and actions that led us deeper and deeper into lawlessness. Now, we are to present those exact same members to righteousness with the exact same fervor and consistency, just like we used to do that, so now we do this. And we are not all the same. Not all are meant to be preachers or teachers. We are all different, just like no two flowers are the same, no two animals are the same. We are children of God with unique personalities that he has given us to use for his glory. Now, how and what are we doing for his glory? Well, obeying his, Paul's exhortation here, of course. That's what we do. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is a very characteristic way, New Testament way, of dealing with holiness and sanctification. And certain parts of it stand out, stand out quite clearly. We've already gone over these in this chapter more than once. But since Paul is repeating them again here, uh, <clears throat> then we will go over them again as well. Must be a reason for the repetition, mustn't there? What might that reason be? Because people are always going to misunderstand what is being said, regardless of how frequently that it is said. As we said when we began this chapter and, and have repeated in almost every lesson, there is no chapter in all of Scripture that has been more misinterpreted than this one and always done so in order to, in or, done so in order to push a specific narrative regarding holiness and sanctification. Now, we have to be very careful to avoid proof texting never been good at anything in my life, but if there was anything I was close to being good at, it was proof texting. Don't want to get in a battle with me over that, okay? I was good at it. Let's be very careful to avoid proof texting, be it from ourselves or from another in a teaching position. Proof texting means that this is what I want to believe, and these are the verses that I'm going to use to prove to myself and to you that I am correct. Okay? Some may not actually say what I want them to say, but we can twist them a bit here and there to make them work. All right? Be very careful. Again, I will remind you that if you pick up a dozen commentaries on Romans chapter 6, you are probably going to get a dozen varying interpretations of different aspects of this chapter, especially with regards to sanctification and holiness. Because people have their ideas that they already believe, and they have to make this coincide with that. So that being said, let's work this out with fear and trembling, as it were. What are the principles of sanctification and holiness that we can pick out from this particular verse, this one statement right here? Well, there are six principles in this one statement. The first thing that we notice is that this is an exhortation. Moreover, it is a command. Paul says, uh, present, present these things, put them in service of, kind of like joining the army, in fact, exactly like joining the army, 
All of your powers and faculties and propensities are now at the service of this new commander and this new country. Not just handing them over, but presenting yourself along with all of your capacity and ability to go with yourself. Here I am, all that I am, and everything that I have. I'm presenting that, okay? And again, this is a command. The New Testament way of holiness and sanctification is always a command. It is never a request. It is a command, which leads to the second principle. Being a command, it is obviously something that we have to do, and therefore it is something that we can do. There is no command in Scripture that does not carry that implication. And so here we are. We're commanded to do something. We are commanded to live in a certain manner. This is not an announcement of a message which tells us how this is going to be done for us. Paul is not, is not contrary to so many commentaries, telling us here that because we are now Christians, all we have to do is realize that if we will only surrender ourselves, all of this is going to be done for us. He is not saying that. This is a command. He is commanding us to do something. There is no message that all of this is going to be done for us, neither here nor anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament. The parallel that Paul uses here proves this. Look at how he puts it. He says, just as you once, once what? In your old life, before you were born again, okay, that's the once. In your old life, before you were born again, you actively participated in all manner of sin. You did this, okay? It was not done for you. It was not something that was done for you. It was not something that was done on your behalf. You did this. You used your members to commit sin, and you did so because you liked it and because you wanted to do it. And so you did exactly what you wanted to do. Very well then, says Paul. You now have to live your Christian life in the exact same way. You have to do these things. You have to use your members, your faculties, your instruments. You have to use them. There is no message here that by some alignment of the stars, all of these problems, all their problems are going to be removed and all of it is going to be done for them. There is no such teaching here nor anywhere in the New Testament. Instead, there is a command, something that you and I have to do, and it is our doing of it that is going to produce the promised result. If you present your members to righteousness, the result is what? Sanctification, okay? The doing is what produces the result. Third principle is that this is a command that is based on something that has already happened to us and not on what we, uh, on what may or can yet happen to us. So what has happened to us? We've spent two whole chapters, months. Having been set free from sin and having been made slaves of righteousness, the command is based on what has already happened to us, already made free from sin and its reign, as we have stated so many times in this chapter. This is not telling us about another experience that we might possibly have somewhere in the future. It already happened, and the reign of righteousness has already begun to work in us. 
The moment you were justified, the moment you believed in Christ, you were in Christ at that moment. You were joined to him. That is the experience. You have died with him and you are alive to God in him. Since this is already true of you, now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We have been given all that we could ever need to obey this command. We just need to act on it. This is the teaching throughout the whole of the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You have to do something. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time there because it's a very parallel statement that Peter makes here with what Paul is saying. It's kind of like these guys knew the same Jesus or something. I don't know. It's <laughs> So in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is reminding those uh, who read this letter that they have obtained a faith of equal standing as that of the apostles, uh, and this is in reference to their justification. Okay, But then he goes on to talk about something that happened at the very same time as their justification. So in verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see the addendum there? So y'all have been justified. That's what he's telling these. But y'all have been justifi justified. But something else happened along with that. His divine power has granted to you, to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Not only justified, but also given at the same time all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's already ours. There is not some further experience that we are waiting on. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So this here's Peter's version of consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Okay? He's saying the exact same thing. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That Paul's been talking about through this entirety of chapter 6. And since you are dead to sin and alive to, uh, and alive to God, it's time for you to do something. Peter has a command based on this fact, just like Paul had a command based on this fact. Peter's command is a bit easier to wrap our minds around because it's a little more specific. Paul's is kind of vague, you know. To me, anyway, it's kind of vague. Peter's is very specific, so we're going to look at that. It means the same thing, however. Verses 5 to 7, 
He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Okay? Because you are dead to sin and alive to God, do what? Make every effort. How much effort is every effort? Is that like the whole of yourself? Okay? Maybe. Some, maybe some. Uh, every effort, the focus of every action we might undertake is to take this faith which God has given us and to add certain character, character elements to that faith. Focus your efforts in adding virtue to your faith and adding knowledge to your virtue and adding self-control to your knowledge, steadfastness to your self-control, godliness to your steadfastness, brotherly affection to your godliness, and finally love to your brotherly affection. You just keep building on these things, okay? These are not being added to you. There is nowhere in here that says that these are being added to you. You are working this out for yourself with fear and trembling. Meaning that now that you have been justified, you have also been given the ability to fulfill this task assigned to you. To present your members to God as instruments of righteousness and to add all of these amazing character traits to your faith. You've been given everything you might need in order to make it happen except for one thing. What's that one thing? Your own effort. Okay? You can do this, but it is going to take some effort. This is sanctification and holiness. Sanctification and holiness are to what end? Verse 8, still in in 2 Peter, okay? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a sad, sad situation to find yourself in, okay? Not everybody is a scholar, okay? But there are certain things about Jesus Christ and about the church and about each other that we absolutely should absolutely know, okay? Otherwise, we are ineffective or unfruitful. People that come and hear a 30-minute sermon every week and that's all they ever get out of uh, their relationship to Christ, they're probably ineffective or unfruitful when they talk about Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the positive. But Peter also gives us the negative. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you don't have them, it means you haven't been applying yourself, and you haven't. if you haven't been applying yourself, it's because you have forgotten what Christ did for you. That's basically what that says in a nutshell. And then he goes back to the positive. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. 
So all of these are the things that we are supposed to focus our lives on. Be diligent to confirm. He says these are a confirmation. These qualities are a confirmation of your calling and your election. That's what that says. Okay? And if you practice these qualities, this virtue and knowledge and all of it and brotherly love, if you practice all of this, what's your promise? What's that last sentence say? You will never fall. Whole point being made by Paul in verse 19 is that his command to us is based on what has already happened to us, not on something that we are still waiting to happen. So many commentators would have us believe. And that is that a man can be justified, and yet he might go for years or even decades before he is actually sanctified. There are commentaries that teach that, unfortunately. That belief is the lie that leads people to think and to say and believe the lie that kicked off this chapter to begin with. There are the people making excuses for those that continue in sin while claiming to be under grace. Which brings us to our fourth principle, and that is that the New Testament way of teaching sanctification and holiness is to get us to realize our position and standing and then act accordingly. To act like what we claim to be. Be what we are, not what we can become. Okay, We have already been crucified in Christ. There is no appeal anywhere in the scriptures for us to become crucified with Christ in order to be sanctified because it has already happened. You cannot be a Christian without being in Christ. Baptized into him and into his death, his resurrection, his everything. And yet so many commentaries tell us that we need something more than that in order to be able to follow um, Paul's command that can lead us to sanctification. In other words, they're kind of saying that there's only a select few Christians that ever reach sanctification. The rest of us are just out of luck, I guess. According to Paul, nothing could be further from the truth. A person that has been justified has also been at least partially sanctified at the same time. Fifth principle is that this command is not burdensome. It is absolutely reasonable. We used to present our members to immorality. There is therefore no reason why we cannot present these very same members to our new master. You gave yourself to that, now give yourself to this. Nothing here about emotion, nothing here about sentiment. It's just a reasonable appeal for a logical follow-through. Just apply the logic and be teachable. You used to give yourselves to that, now give yourselves to this. Now, we are well aware that the New Testament, which we have in print, is quite a bit different from the one that is expounded on from most of the pulpits week by week. See, when the New Testament meets a man who is falling into sin and failing, there is no mollycoddling. Okay? There is no mollycoddling in this book whatsoever. There is no pity in this book. There is always a call to examine one's statement of beliefs and then to say, 
Now, this style of life is utterly inconsistent with your beliefs. You are being illogical. You are even being unreasonable. So much so that if you refuse to face the truth, your kind of life makes me doubt whether you are a Christian at all. This is how the New Testament speaks. It asks, what are you? What is the value of this belief you claim to have? The life you live has to match very closely what it is that you claim to believe. Otherwise, as the Apostle John says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So why is this not the version of the New, of the New Testament that comes out of the pulpits week after week? Mostly it is a men, it is because of men attempting to improve on the grace of God, as Paris Reedhead would say. That's where this whole the church is a hospital idea came from, is men trying to improve on the grace of God. Poor, miserable, suffering souls that have been given nothing to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. What have we been given in order to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Is there anything more than that? I don't think so. Okay? There's no way that they can defeat the enemy. The one that is in the world is far too strong. And what does the scripture say? Greater is he that is in you than who? There you go. We need the church to be a hospital because all of Christ's warriors are wounded and bleeding and they don't stand a chance in the war going on around us. Just shower them with grace and leave them in their sin. At that point, it's not grace anymore. I understand that we want to offer people, people grace, and I have been shown grace more than I deserve. But there is a point that grace is no longer grace. It is license, and we don't want to go there. None of that stuff is biblical. It is weak, unredeemed men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, as Jude says. Church is not a hospital, it is a military barracks, as we've said before. Hospitals do not win battles. Armies win battles. And based on who we are and what we have been given and what we have been told by the Word of God, the only wounds that exist in the church are arguably 99.9% self-inflicted. If you get what I mean by that. And this is the very reason for Paul's giving us this command. He says, just as and even so. That's the two sides of the coin. Just as and even so. Just as you used to do that, even so, now do this. This is our test of how much effort we are, we are exerting toward our sanctification. How did we use our members before versus how, we're, how are we using them now? Take, for instance, the question of time. And this hit me hard. This is from Martin Lloyd Jones. This hit me hard, so y'all have to suffer the same way I did. All right, just want to let you know. Uh, take, for instance the, instance, the question of time. Look at the amount of time men and women of the world commit to sin. A huge number of hours devoted to sin. Okay? All, all their free, every, every minute devoted to sin. 
They believe in what they do. So they devote every spare moment to it. And how do many Christians apply our just as, even so, in that time respect? Well, in our old life, the majority of our leisure time was spent on entertaining or bringing pleasure to ourselves. Right? Our old life. That's what we spent our life doing, right? Just like the, just like the, you know, all unbelievers. All of our time was spent entertaining or bringing pleasure to ourselves. So what then is our leisure time spent on now in our new life? If you don't feel just a twinge of guilt at that question, you are not an honest person. And I'm going to leave it at that. Be honorable, be consistent, be logical. You have at least the same amount of time now that you did before. And if you only knew him truly, you would devote much more of that time to him. Just as you once used your time for self, so now use your time for righteousness. And that's just our time. The same can be said for our energy or our perseverance or our money. Just as we used to use all of these for selfish gain, so now we are to use them all for righteousness. This is the way that the New Testament teaches holiness and sanctification. There is nothing sentimental or weak about it. There is no psychological shortcut, just a stern and strong admonition to live what we claim to believe. Which brings us to our sixth and last principle, and it is one that we have covered before. And that is that our difficulties and failures with regards to holy living are due to our failure to realize the truth about ourselves. The truth is that we are in Christ. And the truth is that we cannot be plucked out of his hand. We cannot fail. Um, we have died to sin. We are alive to God. Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. We're winning. We are winning. At least we should be winning. If you are not winning, then there is only one reason. And that is that you have presented one or more of your members to activities or thoughts that are not righteous or holy and are not being used in service to God. Just as you used to use these members in service to yourself, he says, so now you are to use these members in service to God. It's that simple. The less control you have over your own members and their functions, the more they will eventually take control of your mortal body, and the vicious spiral out of control will be incredibly painful, as we talked about in about King David last week. God may have to take things from you that are very dear to you in order to bring you back from your rebellion. Because that's what it is. It's rebellion. So now what? Maybe you're just now realizing that you're just as and you're so now. Might not be what they ought to be. How do you fix that before God has to step in and painfully fix it for you? Just know that there are no shortcuts. There is only every effort. Okay, That's not a shortcut. Every effort. 
There's only applying yourself to the command given by by Paul. He says, look at your members. Identify your members. Identify who those members are serving. If any are serving in the wrong kingdom, it's time to take them and apply them to the task and use them for righteousness that leads to sanctification. And the more effort and energy you put into this command, you will find that equal to the amount of effort you put into it, that you will become cleaner and cleaner and purer and purer and holier and holier and more and more like the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. So a summary that I should have just used to begin with. With all that I am and with all that I have, I used to go in that old evil direction. Paul says, now, by command, that I am to rise up and go in this new holy direction with all that I am and all that I have. We have the power to do it. Every gifting needed to accomplish it. For not living this life, and the only possible reason is because we've chosen not to do so. This is sanctification as taught in the scriptures. This is the New Testament way of preaching holiness and sanctification. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for grace. I pray for mercy. I pray for the Holy Spirit to come and help me, help each one here. To give the effort. Oh.